Our lives aren't important. On your life, my life is important as anyone's. I've been uh, teaching middle school band, uh, uh, but on the weekends, I- You got a suit. Yeah, maybe. By then we'll know what it feels like. What does it feel like? You will find me a respectful, quiet, passive observer. Good morning, church. It's good to be with you for the final week of our series on the story of reality. Now, on part two of our series, we've been looking at worldviews and movies, and today we've come to a fun final movie. That's the movie Knives Out. Now, some of you might be hey, saying, you know, Pastor Bob, what spiritual lessons could I possibly learn from this, uh, from this movie? Um, you know, it's, it's, if you've seen it, you know, it's a murder mystery. Many people die. It's not a Christian movie. There's too many four-letter words for my taste. Well, yes, that all may be true, but inside the movie, there's some significant worldview issues, and I also believe some significant spiritual issues. Because as we've been learning throughout this summer, worldview indeed does matter. And if you stuck with us for this entire series, let me just take you back to week one where we offered a definition of worldview, and we said a worldview simply is our picture of reality. In today's world, there's a great divide between our understanding of reality, and so we talk past people because we don't recognize the difference in worldview. But we also need to recognize that unless we are discerning, our worldviews can be shaped by cultural messages that run counter to the Christian worldview, which is one of the reasons we've done this series. Now, movies offer implicit messages that, passively take, that we passively take in, unless, again, we watch with discerning minds. So today we're going to look at Knives Out as a case study as we finish our series. There are significant worldview issues in the movie. So there's family values, there's the nature of wealth, there's forgiveness. If you haven't seen the movie, let me give you a brief synopsis of the plot line. And spoiler alert, it is a murder mystery, so I will reveal who did it at the end. I'm sorry if you haven't seen it. It's been out for a few years. The main character is, uh, in the movie is a man named Harlan Thromby, who's played by the legendary Christopher Plummer. If you're a Sound of Music fan, you know this is him in his old age now. Uh, Harlan is an extremely wealthy author and businessman. He's got a huge house, many assets, a successful publishing company born out of his own writings. He also has three kids. First, his son, Walt, who runs the publishing company. Then he's got a daughter named Joni, whose who's daughter is going to college and Harlan is paying her tuition. And then finally, there is Linda, his oldest. Um, she's married to Richard and they have one son, a guy named Ransom, played by Captain America himself, Chris Evans. Now, Ransom is an important character later in the movie, so we'll come back to him. Just, just you know, file that away in your mind. Ransom is an important character. Now, in the opening scene, to kick off the movie, we learn immediately that Harlan has died on his 85th birthday. How did he die? Well, it seems to be a suicide, but the police come in to investigate, accompanied by the famous private investigator, a guy named Benoit Blanc, who suspects foul play. Now, you probably recognize Daniel Craig of James Bond fame as the character. The movie, indeed, does have a star-studded cast. The rest of the movie involves twists and turns as we uncover the true nature of Harlan's death as well as who will inherit his fortune. So the movie really, in a lot of ways, is about death and money. And those two themes often reveal unresolved issues in families. And so as we learn right before the reading of Harlan's will in this movie, the Thromby family is quite dysfunctional. Watch this scene to get a picture of what that looks like. Hey, everyone. Uh, I'm just going to be in the other room uh, setting up. Be ready in 10 minutes. Funny, Ransom, you skipped the funeral, but you're early for the will reading. Okay, people grieve in different ways. Let's not... You know what? It's funny you're here at all. Why are you even bothering? That's what I'm asking myself. What's that supposed to mean? He knows what it's supposed to mean. Wait, Walt, what, 
Jacob was in that bathroom the night of the party. Oh, you know what, Richard? You want to go? Bet, Skippy, let's go. You want to go? Come on, oh, hey. no, Bill, watch out, man. Stop! 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 Come on, I've been waiting for you my whole life. Stop it! I can handle myself. Stop it! I can handle it. Oh my God! You got to do this more often. Wow. Now, for some of us, that actually comes a little close to home. Have you ever been at a family gathering? The tensions were mounting. The looks were, you know, getting sharper. And you said, tongue-in-cheek, like ransom, we've got to do this more often. Now, two weeks ago, Pastor Dave walked us through the movie Hamilton, focusing specifically on the American worldview. Knives Out is a film, first and foremost, about family and the values that family instills in us. Our worldviews are shaped very much by our families. What did your family teach you? Ask yourself that. How did your family help you answer the ultimate questions of life? Let me just remind you the five questions we looked at. First, there was the question of origins. Where did I come from? Second, the question of identity. Who am I? Well, family certainly answers that. Meaning, why am I here? Yeah, family weighs in on that and sets us on a trajectory. Uh, Morality, how do I know the difference between right and wrong? Yeah, family answers that too. And then destiny, what happens when I die? Whether implicitly or explicitly, our families pass down worldviews to our kids. And we should ask, what worldview did our family teach us? And what are we teaching our own family? Now, the Thrombies are a very wealthy family. They, they certainly have all they need. In fact, some might describe the Thrombies as being very blessed. And yet, what do you see in this opening scene here? Well, you, you got words and looks of accusation. You got intense conflict leading to physical altercation. People are screaming for peace. And finally, there is an acceptance that this is just the way it is in our family. Money and death can get us to that place very quickly. Now, as I watched the movie a second time in preparation for this, I started to ask myself, why are the Thrombies like this? Why does this family, who has been blessed beyond imagination with wealth and assets and opportunity, why are they so angry? Well, I think it has to do with their view of blessing. And this can be true of many families as well. What is your worldview as it relates to this idea of blessing? Well, let's first pause and ask ourselves, what is a blessing? Webster's Dictionary defines blessing this way. It is a thing conducive to happiness or welfare. A blessing is a thing conducive to happiness or welfare. In other words, when you feel blessed, you usually have received something that, that brings you happiness or it makes you feel cared for in some way. You were feeling discouraged, and then somebody offered a kind word at just the right moment. You were, you were not knowing how you were going to pay a bill, and then somebody offered to help you financially. Those are examples of blessings. Now, the concept of blessing is found often in the scriptures. If you go all the way back to the book of Genesis, you'll see Isaac's sons, Jacob and Esau, craving a blessing from their father, a word of affirmation and identity. The Apostle Paul takes this concept and expands it in his letter to the Ephesian church. Look at what he writes in chapter 1, verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, you notice right away there's this dual dimension to blessing in this verse. God has blessed us, therefore we should also bless him. Now, for some of us, the idea of blessing is kind of a weird concept. You might say, well, isn't, you know, isn't bless you something you say when somebody sneezes, right? Ah, chew, you say bless you, or nowadays you say get away from me, right? <laughs> I've never quite understood why we bless people when they're feeling sick, but, you know. In the context of Ephesians, Paul is saying that you should bless God because of how he has blessed us. And it's done in the context of a relationship with our Heavenly Father, and how has God blessed you? Well, there's a repetition in the verse. He's blessed us in Christ with spiritual blessings that are stored up in the heavenly places. And that gets to the key worldview divide in Knives Out. It's the difference between material blessings and spiritual blessings. So let's compare them. 
Because material blessings are primary in a secular world view where there's no God. Why? Because the material world is all there is. There's no future blessings to look forward to beyond death. And so there's a proclivity to expect certain material blessings for a number of reasons. And we justify it this way. We say, well, I've worked hard for it, so I need that material blessing. I was born into it. I'm, I'm owed it, right? I was wronged, so I'm owed that blessing. These are messages we can learn even in our own families. And so our response when we expect a material blessing from someone that will increase our happiness and welfare, our response in this worldview is entitlement. It's entitlement. You owe it to me. And this grows out of a lack of or a broken relationship with the giver. The secular worldview often produces selfish, entitled people because if this life is all there is, only the material world matters, why wouldn't we always look out for number one? In the Thrombies' case, their relationship with their father was broken in many ways, and they expected things from him without having a real relationship with him, because after all, they were born into it. Did your family live out a secular view of blessing or a Christian view? Because the Christian view of blessing is very different. At the heart of the gospel itself is the idea that we were given something we don't deserve, If I got what I deserve, it would be eternal punishment for my sin because we were all being crushed under a sin debt that we could never pay. And then God stepped in. He paid it for us. Look at what Paul writes in 1.4 in Ephesians. He says, He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now, this is a concept uh, or a doctrine that theologians call the doctrine of election, In other words, God our Father chose to save a people for himself, not based on our merits and good life, but simply because of his grace and love for us. And then he he set us apart to be holy and blameless, reflecting our love for him before the world. Christians may receive material blessings in this life, and I say may receive, it's not a guarantee, but we are guaranteed spiritual blessings, a deep inner relationship with God, and future blessings that bring contentment now. So when Paul says in verse 3 that we are to bless God, what he means is that we should praise him. And when we bless God, it means we praise him for giving us something we don't deserve. And then our response in the Christian view is gratitude. Born out of a relationship with the giver, we become grateful People and we seek to bless others as we have been blessed. But here's the problem we have a difficult time blessing others. And the way I think about it is, is this I, I was talking about sneezes and stuffy noses before. I've noticed something endearing about my daughter Jenna when she gets sick. Because whenever she gets allergies or she gets a cold and her nose stuffs up, she'll get frustrated and then she'll come to me and she'll say, Daddy, ugh. My nose isn't working. I can't get my bless yous out. And I thought, that's our problem with blessings too. The secular worldview stuffs up our noses. It leads to entitlement and a lack of blessing. The Christian worldview is an antihistamine. It clears out our sinuses so we can freely bless others. So you ask yourself, am I entitled or am I a grateful person? That's the tension at the heart of Knives Out. And so for the rest of our time today, let's just examine how family shapes our personal worldview, particularly around this way we view blessing. Knives Out, again, is a case study, and so we're going to look at three family lessons we see in the movie today. First, there's a family lesson on identity. Second, there's a family lesson on morality. And then finally, there's a family lesson on destiny. So before we continue, would you please bow your heads and pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your goodness and your grace in our lives. Lord, help us to recognize the way that we have been blessed in Christ. Help us to be blessings to others, Lord. Would you soften our hearts and would you transform us today? We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so first, identity. Who am I? Well, there's nothing that initially shapes our identity more than the family we came from. No matter how much counseling we've been to, that family lays a foundation. 
Author and counselor Dan Allender wrote an incredibly helpful book entitled How Children Raise Parents. Okay, now that, that's counterintuitive, you might say, but if you are a parent, you know simultaneously the feelings of wonder, joy, and fear, right? You say to your kid, the day you were born is the happiest day of my life and also the most frightening. <laughs> Why? Because when you become a parent, you quickly realize your kids don't come with instruction manuals, right? You wish they did, but as Dan Allender contends, our children make us in many ways who we are. Listen to what he writes. He says, to be great parents, we must allow our children to shape our lives. We must not only guide and shape our children, but we must also go to them as students of life. If we will allow it, our children will grow us up to be mature adults who can offer them a taste of heaven. Thus, the blessing is bestowed on both. Now, don't miss that. As parents, we bless our children and our children can bless us. That's what Paul's talking about in, in Ephesians, this very biblical idea. But what, what does that blessing look like, right? Allender continues, he says, from the first moment a baby's born, from the moment the baby comes out, the baby's crying and screaming for mommy and daddy, they are asking two questions. All of us did. Am I loved? Can I get my own way? <laughs> Am I loved? And you're laughing because you know it's true. If you're a parent, you will answer those questions. The parents who bless their children make it very clear, yes, you are loved unconditionally, and no, for your own good, you can't get your own way. How you answer those questions shapes the identity of your children. Now, if you go back to the movie Knives Out, we learn one of the reasons the thrombies are throwing fists and so dysfunctional in that opening scene is that Harlan has not done a good job of answering those questions. In particular, he's enabled his kids to do whatever they want too often. And so now, in his old age, he's decided to put up boundaries for their good. So watch this scene, how he interacts with his son, Walter, as he tries to put up a boundary. What did Holland say to you? The Netflix guy is a business affair guy. He sent something over. It's hard numbers this time. And I just think this is a window that's not going to stay open. We need to take advantage of it. But then you just need to look at the numbers. Walt. Dad, Dad, you, you put me in charge of our books. Let me be in charge. Let me do this, please. They're not our books, son. They're my books. And this is not how I wanted to have this conversation. But you're right. You're right. It's, it's unfair of me to keep you tethered to something that isn't yours to control. What? Now, I've done you a grave disservice. All these years, I've kept you from building something of your own that was yours. But you're not going to be running the, the publishing house anymore. You're free of it. Oh. Dad, are you firing me? No. <laughs> we'll talk details tomorrow. My mind's made up. Good boy. Now, hopefully you caught what just happened. Right? Walt has been running Harlan's publishing company for many years, and Harlan now is going to let him go. It's for the best, he says. Now, it's got to sting to have your father fire you. And to be fair, this is really Harlan's fault for not taking action a long time ago. But now, in his own dysfunctional way, Harlan is trying to bless his kids by not giving them what they want for their own good. In another scene, we see Harlan interacting with his daughter, Joni, who's been secretly, we learn, stealing money from him, even as Harlan's been paying her daughter's college tuition payments. Harlan gives her one more semester's check and then says, that's the last money you will get from me. So Harlan told Walt, I'm not... I'm letting you go so that you can build something of your own. And then Harlan told Joni, you can't steal money from me and think that it's okay. I love you, and you cannot get your own way. See, even in his old age, he was trying to make changes to bless his kids in the long run. Now, you see, the secular worldview teaches us to be entitled about material possessions. I'm part of the family. It's my birthright. And that, that's an answer to the identity question. And so as a result, Harlan's children seem to use their relationship with Harlan for their own gain. 
But their experience in the family taught them this. Now, on the flip side, the Christian worldview teaches us something different about family and blessing. Look at how Paul continues in Ephesians 1, 5. He says, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So we already learned that God has given us spiritual blessings in Christ, both now and in the future. He chose us, he set us apart, but then in verse 5 he says, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Now in this verse and following, Paul shows us the beauty of life in the family of God. In other words, our family of origin shapes us, but our Christian family can reshape us. And that's crucial to understanding worldview, because even if your family instilled a secular worldview within you, Jesus can transform your heart. You can change. And look at the concepts that Paul introduces here. First, he he uses that word predestined, which probably caught your eye. Now, this has been a debated term throughout the history of the church, and it will continue to be. I just want to point out two things about it. First, if you're a Christian who loves the Bible, you believe in predestination because it's in there. However, secondly, you know, parsing out the meaning of what that looks like is what people argue about. The point I just want to make today is this. In the context of Ephesians 1.5, predestination describes the destiny of those who belong to God. What's the destiny? That destiny is full adoption into his family as sons and daughters of God. Which gets us to the second term, that idea of adoption. And we've already learned in verse 4 that God chose us. When someone chooses you, that is a blessing of God's grace. In the Greco-Roman world to which Paul was writing, adoption meant bringing a desired person into one's family. And Roman standards at the time made it natural that that adoptee would be a male, which is why Paul is using that language. But it's clear, if you look at all of Scripture, that adoption in God's family is equally applied to men and women. And so here's the point. When you're adopted, someone chooses you, not based on your own merits. Uh, You get a new family. You get new relationships. And God did this on purpose, or other versions say, God did it according to the pleasure of of his will. Did you hear that? It was pleasing to God that he adopted you. So what was life like in your family of origin? Maybe the secular worldview dominated. Maybe you grew up in a Christian family who lived out a more secular view of blessing. This should not be so in the church because there are new family characteristics and spiritual blessings, if you will, that should be evident among the people of God. Look at how Paul describes it in verse 6. He says, We do this to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved, that's Jesus, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. Now, there's one word that should explode off the page here, and that, that describes life in the family of God, and that is the word grace. It is at the heart of the Christian worldview, and it should transform our view of blessing. Because in Paul's theology, all of us are sinners in need of a Savior. All of us, at one point in time, were living a selfish life built upon a secular world view of blessing. But God chose us. He saved us, not based on anything we deserve, but simply because of his grace. We received his unmerited favor. In fact, it says he lavished it upon us. Now, the other night when it was pouring down rain... And caused a bunch of flooding, I thought, you know what? As I walked out in the rain one time, this is what God's grace is like, only without the destruction. He pours it on us. It's a torrential downpour of his grace. That's what Paul is saying here. That's what life in his family should be like. We're not entitled people. We're grateful people. In God's family, he's saying we celebrate grace. Now, there's one more character a central character in Knives Out that I didn't introduce you to, and that is the character of Marta Cabrera. In Harlan's old age, she becomes his nurse and caretaker, and in many ways, she exemplifies the image of grace. She does not come from money. She's kind. She befriends Harlan. She gets to know him personally, and he confides in her. She just enjoys being with him. And we meet her in the film when Benoit Blanc is questioning her about the circumstances of Harlan's death 
And we learn very quickly that she is a truthful, honest, kind person. Watch this scene. but no possible motive for murder. Where are you going? Harlan Thromby's nerves. Marta... Cabrera. Marta Cabrera. Miss Cabrera, Please. you can just wait inside and we'll Ms. be with Cabrera. you. Miss Cabrera. I've been doing a little poking. You're hired on a part-time basis as a registered nurse, yes? Uh, yes. I don't work for IVNA. Harlan hired me directly. Take a seat, please. And you're paid a flat rate for how many hours a week? Um, well, I started at 15, and then he, he needed more help. Medical help? He needed a friend. Does having a kind heart make you a good nurse? All right, Mark, I mean... Yeah, yeah I'm is... Martin. We were just discussing possible motives in the family. I suspect that Harlan has told you much unfiltered truth about each of them. And a little bird has told me, how shall I put this delicately? You have a regurgitative reaction to mistruthing. <laughs> Who told you that? Is it true? Uh, yes. Oh. It's something I've had since I was a kid. It's a physical thing that I... Just the thought of lying. Yeah, it, it makes makes me puke. Really? Is Richard having an affair? Richard? Mm -hmm. An affair? Yeah. I guess or no will do. No. Now, what you missed here is that right after that, she goes and uh, throws up in a flower pot. <laughs> very clear. How would you love to have the fact that when you tell a lie, you have to throw up? Probably a, a bad problem to have. Now, <laughs> we learn here, though, she is a truthful person. And the theme of truth and lies moves us from that identity question to that morality question. But we also learn that she's a generous person. We learn that she values relationships. She's not enamored with Harlan's wealth and material possessions. In fact, in some ways, she knows the value. Uh, I should say, in some ways, she points to the Christian view of grace and spiritual blessing. Can you put a price tag on God's forgiving grace? So the worldview behind our identities is shaped by our families. Is it secular or Christian? Are we entitled people or grateful people? Family answers the identity question, but as we start to see in Marta's character, family also shapes our view of morality. What is right and what is wrong? What did your mother and father teach you about lying? Why did your family what did your family teach you about a moral virtue like patience? Now, I suspect there's some patient people in, in this room or watching at home, and if you're patient, you know who you are. Uh, but in general, we don't live, a, live in a patient moment in, in history. The advances of technology has ma have made us expect everything instantaneously. If you send a text message, you better write back immediately. Or if you order something on Amazon, it better be here in a day or two. Right? In fact, some people engage in a practice known as speed dating, which I wonder how in the world you're supposed to develop a relationship at warp speed, but some people do it. Here's the bottom line. Our world is not comfortable with waiting, and that seriously affects our view of blessing. It's not a blessing if it doesn't get here in a timely manner, then it's a nuisance. We are not comfortable in the mystery of of waiting, but Paul says something very different about God's plan. Look at Ephesians 1.9. He goes on. He says, God in all wisdom and insight is making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Now, I want you to hone in on that word mystery because that is how God's plan is described. In fact, it's a significant term regarding God's will. It's from the Greek word mysterion, which is used 28 times in the New Testament, and it doesn't mean just some mysterious secret. No, it, the word refers to God's plan, which he reveals stage 
by stage, by stage throughout history. In other words, God doesn't give us all the details right away. The blessings he gives us are revealed along the journey, and you have to be patient, which is, again, part of this morality question. Now, Knives Out is a murder mystery. You don't get all the details right away, otherwise it would be a pretty bad murder mystery, right? You don't know how all the pieces fit together until the end of the movie, and that is how it works in the Christian life. But many of us are not comfortable with waiting for God's mystery to be revealed, Now, my wife will tell you that when challenges and uncertainties come in our life, often we have the same conversation because I'm the planner, I'm concerned how things are going to work out, I want to know the end of the plan. And she will always look at me and say when things come up, don't you trust God? (laughs) Right? Haven't you seen how he's provided for us, how he's carried us through every circumstance in life? And every time she says that, that's when blessings come. It's like God speaks right through her. Part of receiving the blessing is being content with the Lord and waiting for the mystery to be revealed. So Paul says in this verse, in his wisdom and insight, God will make it known. Now in Knives Out, there's a scene where Harlan is talking to Marta, and he explains that he has decided to cut all of his children out of his will. They will not get the money they so desperately crave, and he says he's doing this for their good. And so in this scene, he's reflecting on his mistakes as a father. Watch what he says here. You know, sometimes I think that everything I've given my family, I've done maybe uh, without knowing or or maybe to keep them beneath me. Uh, I certainly should have, I don't know, encouraged Walt to write his own stories, not just be a caretaker of mine, like you said I should, and then be a father, not just a provider for Joni, like you also said, and then I could have been kinder to Linda and Ransom, and Jesus, Ransom, (laughs) oh, there's so much of me in that kid, Uh, confident, stupid, I don't know, protected, playing life like a game without consequence (laughs) until you can't tell the difference between a stage prop and a real knife in Harlan's voice right he's lamenting what he's taught his children and how he's let them down he's filled with regret I think because of the worldview he's passed on to his kids how did he answer the morality question for them well he certainly didn't teach them to be patient Paul shows us this value in Ephesians 1.10. He talks about how God's plan is for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. What is God's plan? God's plan is to unite all things in Christ. When is that plan going to be fulfilled? In the future, perhaps in the very distant future. And what does that mean? That means we're called to be patient people. And that truth gets to another worldview divide, I think the divide between instant gratification and delayed gratification. Is it better to be impatient or patient? Again, that's a moral question. It shapes our lives. So in instant gratification, we live in a society where everything needs to happen immediately, but that's also because we demand it. The secular worldview of blessing tells us that we should get what we want when we want it. If it takes too long, go and do it yourself. We are not blessed unless we have the latest iPhone, the latest vehicle, the most stylish clothes. By contrast, the Christian worldview understands that God's plan will come about in this idea of the fullness of time. And so we delay our gratification, we wait, we're patient, and we teach each other to be patient, to endure No matter what happens in life, there is a future hope awaiting. And so Christians, as author Jen Wilkin says, never run around like the sky is falling because we're confident. We understand that God's blessings don't come in our time but his. Now Harlan Thromby realizes that he missed something as a father. He's not taught his kids to wait but to demand. What worldview are you passing on to your children? What are you teaching them about right and wrong, about patience? Because our actions speak louder than our words many times. 
I recently came across the book by pastor and author John Tyson, and it's called The Intentional Father. But the principles in the book can also be applied to mothers as well. He just is writing to fathers. In the book, Tyson describes five different types of fathers. The first one, he says, there's the irresponsible father. And this father has zero involvement in his kids' lives. Second, there's the ignorant father. And this type of dad doesn't realize the damage he's doing to his children. He never wants to grow. He just projects his own brokenness onto his kids. Third, there's the inconsistent father. And this father is torn by personal ambition. He's he's capable of being a good dad, but he prioritizes his career and his hobbies above his kids. Fourth, there's the involved father. And this type of dad shows up to everything, gets a lot of things right, but still doesn't take the time to understand his own kids individually. What we should be pursuing, Tyson argues, is becoming an intentional father, because this father is, is, is deeply invested in discovering who his children are and helping them reach their redemptive potential. This father sees parenting as God's call on his life. And so Tyson concludes, he says, this kind of father leaves a multi-generational blessing in the lives of his children. Now, discussing these five different types of dads, this could be a sermon in, of, in and of itself. But I think what they should do for us today is just cause us to reflect and ask a couple questions. What kind of father was Harlan? He probably realized in this scene that he had been an inconsistent father. Absorbed in his work, he made a lot of money and just gave his kids whatever they wanted. And he regretted it. But second, what kind of father, you could ask, did you have in your own family? And as I describe these five categories, you probably got a picture of what your father was like. And finally, what kind, what kind of father, what kind of parent are you? Because here's the thing. I, I suspect many Christian parents fall into the involved father, the involved parent category. You show up to your kids' activities. Uh, you get a lot of things right. But as Tyson rightly points out, it is the intentional father, the intentional parent that actually blesses, forms, and matures his children. He teaches about spiritual blessings and the value of waiting. So family shapes our view of identity, yes, who are we? Family teaches us right and wrong, what's moral. But finally, family informs us, and this is where we'll land today, it informs our view of destiny. What happens when you die? What's life leading towards? So we see a family lesson on on destiny as we end our film. As I said up front today, the film is about death and money, And if you don't believe there's life after death, acquiring money and passing it on to your children is prominent. But what is wealth? And when I say the word wealth, we probably think of money, but it has a much broader meaning. You could have a wealth of knowledge or you could have a wealth of relationships. It really gets at this idea of abundance. And the question is, what kind of wealth do you want? Now, in Knives Out, there's a pivotal scene that captures the Thrombies' view of material blessing. Early in the film, we have already learned that Harlan explained to each child he was, gonna, he was not going to give them his monetary inheritance. And yet, in this scene, at the will reading, each child still seems to expect they are, they are going to get what they're owed by birthright. You can see it in their reactions. It's their destiny to receive it. However... In this scene, they get an unexpected surprise. Let's watch how they react to it. Well, the other reason I thought this gathering would be uh, beneficial is because Harlan altered his will a week before he died. He sealed it. He asked me not to submit it to the courts for probate until after his death. So, if anyone is confused about anything, we're all together, we can talk. Although I don't imagine any of it is going to be that complicated. Uh, Harlan's assets included... Um, the house. The house, which he owned out, right? Um, 60 million. Yes, 60 million in various cash accounts and investments. And of course, the real asset. Sole ownership of Blood Like Wine, his publishing company. He also wrote up a statement when he was making the changes and he wanted that read first. Dearest Linda, Walter, and Joni, 
Some of you may be surprised by the choice I've made here. No pleasure was taken in the exclusion, and its purpose was not to sow greater discord in the family, quite the opposite. Please accept it with grace and without bitterness, but do accept it. It's for the best, Dad. Um, wow. Well, yeah, not too complex at all. Uh, this will be quick. <laughs> I, Harlan Thromby, being of sound mind and body and yada, 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 I hereby direct that all my assets, both liquid and otherwise, I leave in their entirety to Marta Cabrera. My entire ownership of Blood Like Wine Publishing, I leave in its entirety to Marta Cabrera. The copyright of its catalog, likewise, I leave in its entirety to Marta Cabrera. Uh, no. That's not, no. that's, no, that can't be. No. Can I see that, please, Alan? Yeah, that's right. Please. This can't be legal. It's right. He's, you know, he's been... Oh, my God. He's been... He's been, he's been oh, he's been he's been he's a mistake. I don't know what to say. We're his family, so... <laughs> it's not possible. There's safeguards against it. Right. Fine. Something like You know, Alan, listen. All right. Wow, he did not see that coming, especially if you haven't seen the film before. So you're telling me that Harlan changed his will and none of his biological kids are getting anything. Yes. That's so unfair, you say. Well... Tarlin's money, he can do with it whatever he wants. <clears throat> but I want you to notice the different reactions in the scene. How did Harlan's kids react to the news? Disbelief. Uh, um, no. Uh, let me see that. How can, th th can this be legal? How did Marta react? Also disbelief, but in a very different way, because she didn't deserve what she got. See, the secular worldview leads to entitlement. The Christian worldview of blessing, born out of God's grace, leads to gratitude. And death and money can bring out those worldviews. Look at what Paul says in Ephesians 1, 11 and 12. He says, in him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things together according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Now notice that word inheritance. That's central in that, reading, that will reading scene. Harlan's kids wanted their inheritance. But what does Paul mean by inheritance? Well, our inheritance here is our inclusion in Christ to the spiritual blessings of God. And this means that all people who've trusted in Christ, past, present, future, we have future, a future hope that's guaranteed. What does it produce? It produces gratitude, praise to the giver. Now look at how, how Paul concludes here. He says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now, these verses indicate our union with, with Christ, salvation through his gospel is available to Jews and Gentiles, meaning not just the elite in people, everyone. In fact, Paul is often hardest on the most religious people and gracious toward the outsider. Furthermore, he says, I'm giving you the Holy Spirit to guarantee your inheritance. I'm putting a down payment on you. Again, this blessing is partially in the future, so you need to wait. And then, and then I'm going to seal you with the Spirit, meaning there's going to be evidence of a life change. There will be evidence that you are a child of God. And church, this is the crux of the matter in this worldview divide. Because if you believe that there's no life after death, you will only live for this world, and it often breeds entitlement. You can tell the difference between entitled and grateful people by how they live their lives. Marta showed love and kindness to Harlan, and he chose to give his money to her. Grateful people are kind, compassionate, love, and gracious, because if you love God, it's evident in your life. Do you love God? Or do you just want from him what you think you are owed? 
J.I. Packer, in his classic book, Knowing God, identifies four characteristics of people who love God. And as I walk through them, ask yourself, are these true of my life? First, he says, those who know God have great energy for God. In other words, if you love God, if you know him, you will pursue activities that please him. We will give our best time and energy toward building his kingdom. Those who know God have great thoughts of God. What captures your mind? Are you always thinking about the things of this world or of our Savior? What we, what we fixate our mind on shows where our true allegiance lies. Third, he says, those who know God show great boldness for God. In other words, boldness involves risk. What are you willing to risk for God? Reputation, career, relationships. See, boldness causes us to do risky things for our Savior. And then finally, and I think importantly, he says those who know God have great contentment in God. And contentment means that we are satisfied just just being with God. We don't need anything other than him and our relationship with him. And that's why Jesus tells us to pray by going into a room. He says, close the door and just say, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Because our Heavenly Father wants our hearts. He wants to spend time with us. He wants us to know that the true treasure is knowing Him and the power of His resurrection. Because after you die, you're going to be with Him forever. And I think in some small way, Marta's relationship with Harlan shows us that, that intimate connection. And as the movie ends, we do circle back to the character of Ransom. I mentioned he was important earlier. He is the son of Harlan's eldest daughter, Linda. Ransom was very much like Harlan, as he said in an earlier scene. And it turns out that Harlan told Ransom about his will ahead of time. And as a result, Ransom is the one who tried to orchestrate Harlan's death. But he was found out. And it's in this final scene where Benoit Blanc... The P.I. walks through Ransom's plan, and as Ransom's found out, he defiantly confesses. And I think we see something really important about ourselves. Watch this last scene. Trooper Wagner, if you could uh, keep Mr. Drysdale in custody while Lieutenant Elliot, Ms. Cabrera, and myself, we, we go to the hospital and take Fran's statement. All right. Up. Oh, come on. I'm going to say this just to you. No cameras, no courtroom, just you, because you know it's true. We allowed you into our home. We let you watch our granddad. We welcomed you into our family. And now you think you can steal it from us? You think I'm not going to fight to protect my home? Our birthright? Our ancestral family home? That is hooey. Harlan, he bought this place in the 80s from a Pakistani oh, real estate shut billionaire. shut up, Blanc. Shut up! <laughs> shut up with that Kentucky Fried Foghorn Leghorn drawl. Yeah, I killed Fran, but I guess I didn't. So what do you have on me? Nothing. What, attempted murder? I get arson for the building and a few other charges with a good lawyer, which I have. I'll be out in no time. And then you'll see just how much hell I can wreak on your life, you vicious little... Ransom did it, and she was lying about Fran's death. Indeed, she was dead, the hired help whom Harlan had killed. He tricked Marta into giving his grandfather the wrong medication that would kill him, even though it turned out to be the right medication. Why, why did he go through all this? He went through all this because he wanted his money. He had a world, a material view of blessing. And what does he say in this scene? He says, it was my birthright. I was owed it. See, Ransom missed the point of blessing. And it turns out he really didn't even care about his grandfather. He just wanted the money that he could give him. He was entitled, not grateful. And so, friends, as we leave today, I'd like to give you one final thought to reflect on. We are all like Ransom. Because if left to our own devices, we would live lives of selfish entitlement, not gratitude. Because that's part of our sin nature. And the way we battle that entitlement, the way we cultivate gratitude in our lives is this. We remember that we all once 
were like ransom. Let me invite the worship team up for one final song. And as they come, I want to come back to a verse that I skipped earlier in the message. Paul's telling us about our blessings in Christ in Ephesians 1, but I skipped the part where he reminds us that our sins need to be forgiven. He writes this in Ephesians 1, 7, In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. In other words, our true blessing is forgiveness through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus did not have to die for us. He chose to go to the cross. We had a sin debt we could never pay, but Jesus paid it. And just like ransom, we were entitled and selfish, but Jesus redeemed us. He gave us a new heart and a new life through his grace. How can we be anything but grateful? We are all ransom. And thankfully, Jesus became a ransom for us. Jesus' own words in Mark 10, he says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and give his life as a ransom for many. Do you know that truth today? Christian, do you know how blessed you are in Christ, that he is our inheritance now and forever? Our prayer is that this glorious truth would shape your view of the world, shape every area of our lives, both now and as long as we live. Amen? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we thank you for the truth of your word that you, Lord Jesus, are our inheritance, that we are guaranteed spiritual blessings, a relationship with our Heavenly Father that you purchased for us, Lord Jesus. And Father God, out of your reckless, lavish, abundant love, you've adopted us into your family, Lord. Help us to never forget that, to never take our eyes off of that. And may we be people of gratitude who reflect that in a world of selfishness, Lord. May you get the glory for all of that, we pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.